everybody, and welcome to the Medivac Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Myers, joined by our other host, David Reed. Hello, everyone. Before we hop into our guest today, please keep in mind, if you're new here, there is a price for the show. You have to share it with a friend or family member if you get something out of today's episode. So uh, I'm assuming you're going to get something out of today's episode with our guest, Zach Garner. Yes, sir. I got it right this time. (laughs) I did not mess it up this time. Zach Garner. Spent a little over a decade in the Army as a Green Beret. Did a couple other cool things in there. It has a pretty interesting story about his uh, recovery uh, due to multiple injuries kind of concurrently. So uh, welcome, Zach. Thanks for being here today. Thanks brother. for being here today, brother. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. The mustache. Love, love coming to the state of Texas. Did you have the mustache when you served? Part of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? I think. And they let you get away with that there? Yeah, I mean... You know, we had relaxed grooming standards because I worked. No one does the mustache even with the relaxed. Yeah. And I wanted to be different from everyone. (laughs) You know, I feel like I don't have too weak of a chin so I can let that hair go. Yeah. Um, And I don't grow hair on my head anymore. So I just had to capitalize on what I had. You have to capitalize. Yeah. Right. So, and it's been, it's been a good talking point. You've done an excellent job. I make a lot of friends to it. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're coming back. Yeah. 100%. Except now, like, we saw that phase of, like, the handlebar mustache and, like, I can't do that it. Was a, like, that's a little too much yeah. for me. Yeah. This I want, like, the rugged, like... 70s man. Wild yeah. Man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, you know, or uh, Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott. There you go. Was, like, my inspiration for my mustache. Okay. Yeah. Prohibition. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sam I'm a history nerd. Yeah. Obviously. Isn't he 1883? Is that Sam Elliott? Yeah. 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 Yep. Roadhouse. Oh, yeah. Best movie. Roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So well, shit. well well, let's dive into your story a little bit. I know I know it's a it's it's a pretty uh, pretty intense one. So uh, I always like to ask the question of how you got started to that and kind of what led you to going into Green Berets and inspired you to even join the Army? So, the inspiration to join the Army really isn't exciting. You know, I remember the, like, first day of basic training. Like, after you go through reception battalion, you get assigned mm-hmm. to your your basic training company or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And we're all sitting down after we've, like, unpacked and repacked our shit, like, 12 times um, because we didn't do it fast enough. And then they're sitting us down and everybody has to take turns just, like, in, like, kindergarten, stand up and introduce yourself and where you're from, why you joined the military. That never dies, by the way. The introductions. Yeah. I, I got to college and I was still, like... Uh, Donut David, you know, you have to say your favorite food and your first letter of your name. (laughs) And now as an adult, like, I've gone back to college and we did the same thing. It was like, stand up and tell us about yourself. And it's like, I hate talking about myself in a room full of people that don't get it. Because it sounds like you're like, I was a Green Beret. And everyone else is 20. Yeah. And all the while, you're still, you're just... While they're going around the room, you're just trying to remember your name. You're like, okay, when they call on me, it's David. Yeah. David, David. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Like, David. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> Adam. Everyone is, knows what we're talking about here. My name's so. Raven Deed. Uh, damn it. <laughs> Syntax error. Yeah. So we were doing that, and you know, it seemed like every 20-year-old kid, this is 2004, is like, I came to to deploy to fight the war, you know, God and country. Yeah. And I was like, I just 
wanted to leave Indiana. <laughs> um, that's fair. <laughs> that is very fair. This was the quickest ticket out of there that had some financial security behind it. So, um, yeah, I I joined, and honestly, that was the the main driving force. My dad was in the military. My dad did twenty two years. Okay. Was a Vietnam vet, three tours in Vietnam. So I grew up just a light three with that. Yeah, yeah, and I grew up around that. But he never, you know, his philosophy was always like, "I did it, so you don't have to." Mm. Um, but I wasn't a great student. I just didn't, I didn't put a lot of effort into sure. school, you know. So it just wasn't my thing, and. So I got out of high school. I was playing music and in punk rock bands, shitty ones mostly. But we got to play some Warped Tour dates and nice. travel around the country a little bit. And then right before my 19th birthday, came home, was working three part-time jobs, recording at night, living on my mom's couch and was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Army recruiter went and took the ass fab. They were like, can you leave in two weeks? And I was like, that'd be perfect. <laughs> yes, please. Did and you, Did you join at the time with the 18? I joined oh. as a 13 Fox, Ford Observer originally. Oh, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Went to Germany, deployed to Iraq twice. Uh, one with 1st ID, one with 10th Mountain Division as a Ford Observer. During that 10th Mountain deployment, we had a bad ambush one night where seven dudes were killed, three were captured. Oh. And we spent the rest of the deployment looking for those three dudes. And that was my first introduction to special forces. Mm. I mean, I knew what they were, but I'd never been around them. Sure. Mm-hmm. They came in to help with that dust one incident to help find those guys. And just seeing how they operated and like they, you know, from the outside, they looked very relaxed, but they were the most disciplined, relaxed mm. guys. I'd ever seen. And I was like, I want that. Yeah. And I want to work with people like that. Mm -hmm. And so after that deployment, I ended up going to selection and passed first time. Nice. Started the Q course about three months later. First time go through that. Got assigned to seventh group. Immediately deployed to Afghanistan like a month after I got there. Mm. Had no train up. Just you're going. Um, had a, had an awesome deployment. It was actually, it was a different deployment. I was doing PSD for the Siege of Soda Command, so okay. all special operations in Afghan territory. Um, their command, I was there. One guy that went with them and into town and made sure that they didn't get shot. And it offered a huge opportunity to really learn mm. the whole country of Afghanistan because yeah. I saw every corner of it. We were out at every single VSO site over six months. So I really got to understand what was going on, what the climate was like. And came back, got assigned to the dive team and turned around and went right back to Afghanistan with them. Um, a lot of diving out there, huh? Yeah, a ton of diving, <laughs> you know. Uh, jumping into the water tanks occasionally. Yeah. But we... Came back from that during that deployment was when kind of the whole shit show started, though. Mm. And what deployment was this for you? This was my fourth deployment. Okay. And so two to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. We were on the tail end. We had about a month left. And I randomly, we were out on an operation, so we weren't on base. We were sleeping outside of our trucks that night. Mm. And the last thing I remember was... I went over this burnt, this 
berm to take a poop because mm-hmm. it was nighttime and I was going to be going to bed after that. And my senior Bravo is standing up on top of the truck and he can see me over the berm and he like draws everyone's attention in to look at me, <laughs> you know, because that's what we do. We're really mature, really mature human beings. Can we get the flare looking over here real quick? So he makes a big scene and I was laughing. And then I was walking back to the truck. I had made the guard roster for all my guys for the night. All my work was done. So I was ready to bed down. But I needed to get up on top of an RG33 where my rucksack was, which sits pretty high off the ground, as you guys know, to get a t-shirt and socks changed, just mm-hmm. keep things clean. That's the last thing I remember. And the next thing I know, uh, I was being medevaced out mm-hmm. of there. And... I woke up and had no clue if I had just been shot, if I like stepped on a mine, what the hell's going on. I already had an IV in my arm. Come to find out later. Um, so they told me, they were like, hey, we found you on the side of the truck having a seizure and you seized for like 10 minutes. So we had to call a medevac in. Initially, the guy that found me was the same guy that just drew attention to my bowel movement. And he our bomb dog was barking at me because I was on the ground just shaking. And he walked around and somebody was like, is Zach all right? And he says, he's messing with the dog. And everybody just let, <laughs> left me alone. <laughs> oh my God. That is awful. Because so, I, did, I didn't joke around a lot. So they thought yeah, I was just playing, playing with, the, with dog. the dog. Oh no. And then after like five minutes, they're like, I don't think he's playing with the dog. <laughs> That's a long play. So, still shaking. So yeah, they medevaced me out and I get to Kandahar and they were like, hey, you had a seizure, but... At that time, you know, in Special Forces, we have our own docs. We have yeah. our own battalion surgeon, yeah. you know, PAs. They came in the room and kicked everybody out. And they're like, hey, we're not going to report this as a seizure because yeah. that's career ender for you. So, God, you got to love special operations, man. They really take care of their own. They, they were trying to, and that's what I wanted them to do, honestly, at the time. was I was like, hopefully this doesn't happen again, and I yeah. can I love my career, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I came, I, I went through the rest of the deployment, didn't have another one. So, they were like, maybe you were just dehydrated, sleep yeah. deprived, you know, a lot of conditions can factor into it. So, I get home, and about two weeks after I was home, I had another one. Mm. So. At that point, they did an EEG and they were like, hey, you're having seizures like frequently. Not all of them are grand mal seizures where you're losing consciousness, but you have seizure activity constantly going on in your brain Mm -hmm. and it just takes the right shock to make it a grand mal seizure. So they gave me the option to work a desk job. If I went two years and start seizure medication, if I went two years without having a seizure, I could go back to a team. Okay. So at that point, I was like, all right, we'll see where this goes. But it took about six months to figure out the pharmaceutical concoction that would Mm. control my seizures. Sure. And every time I had one, that two-year mark got reset. Oh, man. It's rough. So after six months, I was like, I need to figure, like, I can't count on this. Yeah. Eventually, if this keeps up, you're going to start a med board. I need to start getting my affairs in order. Yeah having a plan. You know, I had a family, had a daughter, a wife. I was 30 years old, needed to figure it out. So went ahead, opted to go ahead and get the med board underway, got out, 
despite having those feelings that I needed to set myself up, I really didn't. Mm. Was there a reason for that? or I think looking back on it now, I think I was scared of mm. just that I wasn't going to be fulfilled like I was in that community. Yeah, coming to terms with it. Yeah. And so it was easier to just not do anything. Yeah. And I I came up with a plan though. So I realized shortly after, you know, the first thing, whenever you're hit a hurdle in life, I've realized this over the many hurdles that I've hit. The first thing I need to do is create a purpose for mm-hmm. myself. And at that time, the biggest purpose I could find was to speak about how fucked up the pharmaceutical treatment for veterans is. Mm-hmm. The VA just loaded me up on pills and sent me on my way. And every month when I would go in for a doctor's appointment, I'd be like, I don't like how these make me feel. Yeah. I'm not myself. I don't ever want to leave my house. I don't remember days at a time. Mm -hmm. I'm just like a zombie just walking around. And the main med that I was on for my seizures stopped my seizures, but it caused all kinds of other psychological side effects. It almost makes it worse. Yeah. I mean, I was, I I would have ended up dead or in jail if I would have continued to take that. No shit. And so it finally got to the point where I went to my neurologist and said, hey, I'd rather have seizures than feel this way and put my family through this. So... What was his response or her response to that? He... So the VA neurologist was like, well, they're working. We can't take you off of it because now your seizure threshold is lowered because it's used to these drugs doing Mm -hmm. the job. So if we take you off of them, you're going to have even more seizures. It's a catch-22, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, great. So this is what my life's going to be. Well, they had to send me to a third-party neurologist for an evaluation for my disability rating because the VA can't do the only evaluation. And it has to be, yeah, outside of the VA. Yeah. So they send me to this guy up in Minnesota, and turns out he was one of like five legal cannabis prescribers in Minnesota at the time. Oh, nice. (laughs) And he said, hey, have you ever thought about checking out cannabis? Mm -hmm. And this is 2015. There's still a lot of stigma. Mm. I was worried about what my my counterparts, my my brothers would think Mm -hmm. of that. So I was real hesitant. And he said, well, hey, look, there's some CBD strains that are specifically out there for people with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. You should do some research on it. So I did. I started doing my research. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And the VA couldn't condone it. But I just took matters into my own hands and set up, you know, I didn't just immediately stop my seizure medication, but I slowly started weaning off of that mm-hmm. and using a CBD oral tincture. Okay. And I I prepared, like I was prepared that I might have some seizures mm. and it never happened. So I just kept living life and all of a sudden I so was a lot you, happier. What, what was it specifically that you were taking? Kepra. Kepra. Yeah. Okay. And... There was a second time later on in the story that we'll get to where I was put back on that medication and had the same side effects. Because at first, I was like, maybe this is also just shit that I haven't dealt with that that I need to deal with that's causing this. And 
Yeah, but then later on in life, after I had dealt with everything that involved the military, Mm -hmm. I started having seizures again, and they put me back on Keppra, and I had the same side effects. And I actually had a doctor at that point say, hey, this is because of this medicine. Mm -hmm. And he's like, we see it all the time. You shouldn't be on this medication. So Mm. my purpose that I found was to just start raising awareness for natural options for vets, because it's not just for epilepsy, but anxiety, stress, PTSD, Mm -hmm. you know, and then basic pain and inflammation in the joints, muscles. It's, it's a great option. That's not going to cause 17 side effects. You know, we've all seen the commercials where it's like, we have this medication that treats us one thing, but it may cause 70 other things, you know, side effects. Yeah. Pain. And death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe you may die. Also die. <laughs> anal leakage. Who wants anal? Oh, you know what? Uncontrollable flash. My cholesterol's better, but I shit my pants on yeah. the rig. <laughs> I don't have seizures, but I have to wear a diaper. Worth <laughs> <laughs> it? Is it? So I, I, I'd go for the seizures, but but just for attention. Like I feel like yeah, yeah. if I do that at the local HEB, yeah, <laughs> shit yourself purposefully. No, no, no. The seizure. Like I'm, I'll take the seizures over shitting my pants all the time. <laughs> so. I came up with this plan that I was going to ride a bicycle from Washington State to Florida and pass through every active duty special forces base along the way, Mm. do fundraisers. I did this under Task Force Dagger nonprofit, and they did a lot of non-pharmaceutical TBI research and treatments at that time. And I had a good relationship with them. So I did this to raise money for that organization Mm. and to just advocate for veterans to start doing their own research and not just taking what the VA is pushing. Yeah. And it ended up being an amazing experience. You know, it was three months long. It was 5,500 miles on a bike every day, riding through the mountains. And then, you know, Texas, I'm sorry. Texas was the most boring state to ride there. Oh, yeah. Dude, oh, I mean, it's so boring. I-10? Yeah, for 90% of the state is just nothing. Oh, yeah. And it's like eight hours to just get out of here. And I was on back roads, and it was like Nasty. September when I came through Texas, so it was hot as yeah. hell, too. Perfect time of year. And <laughs> like no shade anywhere. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, We have tall bushes. No trees, yeah. overgrown bushes here. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I did that, finished that. Had the, you know, there was honestly, it was weird. At the end of it, there was part of me that was like, I don't want to ride a bike for the next six months. Yeah. But there was also part of me, like, it was just such a high having that purpose that, and and connecting with people. And I really got to see how great people are Mm. because just random people that I never met before just heard about what we were doing and would show up at our campsite and bring us dinner or come ride with me the next day for 80 miles or donate an Airbnb that they own so that I don't have to camp in the woods that night and can have a shower and do laundry, you know? So it was, it really changed. I think I was a little bit jaded. I was pissed off that I had to get out of the military on unforeseen terms, Mm -hmm. but it really changed how I viewed life, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it ended up leading to a position coaching endurance athletes. And I had a couple really high profile triathletes that I worked with and I needed to understand psychologically. I wasn't a triathlete. I was a cyclist. I'd been a cyclist for 
you know, the majority of my life. And that was my outlet that I used. That's why up until that point, like I really hadn't dealt with any PTSD because I had this outlet that I could use to distract me from it. And so they offered me a job coaching endurance athletes. I wanted to understand psychologically what they were going through. So I started doing triathlons Mm. and I was doing a half Ironman in 2016 and me and a car decided to become real close friends real quick. Mm. And while you're on a bike, right? Yeah, I was on the bike. I think I was about 35 miles into the course, was in third place, was like trying to get first and second Mm. and went through an intersection that the understanding was it was going to be a controlled intersection. And so there was a lot of confusion. We won't go into the details, but a car ended up passing through the intersection at the same time and we kissed. Yeah. So that was, that was like my second hurdle. And I woke up in the ambulance. They were taking me to the hospital. I had the left side of my face was kind of smashed in Mm. and my right hip was giving me all kinds of pain. And then my back, because when I landed, I flipped through the air like six, seven times and then landed on this side of my face, but then my back scorpioned. And Ugh. so my L5 was broken. And Jesus. yeah, so You're lucky I, to be even walking. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You got hit pretty, pretty quick. Though. L5 yeah. is not a. Yeah. And it still L5. gives me pain, but, but you know, sure. it's life. They told me they can do a fusion. But I'm yeah. like, I'm 37, and that's not like no. just cause more restrictions. Yeah, you like, lose mobility. I'm used yeah. to the Don't pain at this point, you know? You have to, yeah. 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 So while I was in the hospital, I kept telling them, hey, something in this hip is killing me. And they had done x rays, and they were like, your pelvis, your femur are intact. So you, you got hit by a car, dude. It's going to suck. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you're the doctor. I trust you. After like three or four hours and like every hour they were just giving me more Dilaudid, fentanyl, Percocet, whatever. Because I was like, no, it's not helping. So after three or four hours, they're like, let's go scan them again. So they took me back and did another CT scan. And they compared that to the first one. And my whole leg was just filled up with fluid. But the fascia didn't pop. So that fluid was just swelling and swelling and swelling. And it was cutting off circulation. Exactly. So they immediately come in. I had to sign the, you know, all the forms. And then they're like, all right, good night. And I woke up eight hours later with like a 26 inch incision and just open hole from my thigh up to my glute and then all the way across my back. And it was just one big hole open. Damn, dude. And sat in the hospital with a drain in, just sucking fluid out for the next 10 days. And then got out, started doing physical therapy. Um, At that point, I really didn't want to ride bikes again, especially not on the road. Sure. So it just, it caused too much anxiety. I was just constantly, I was too paranoid looking for where everybody else was to really enjoy. It wasn't an outlet anymore. Yeah. So how long was that recovery for? I mean, you broke your L5 and... I would say... I wasn't really doing much. I was like using a walker and every either in a wheelchair or a walker for probably two or three months. And then That's a lot of time. Yeah. And then two to three months of just like basic 
body weight, mm-hmm. getting things moving again, physical therapy. Sure. And then after six months, I don't know if I was supposed to start that soon, but that's when I started getting back to the gym because I started, I needed that purpose again. Yeah. And yeah. at that point, I kind of did what a lot of Green Berets do when they're unsure about what direction to go. And that's contract for the government. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, started sending out my resume and one of the programs that I really wanted to get onto responded fairly quickly and said, Hey, we'd love to have you. However, you've now been out of the army for two years and your security clearance has lapsed. So we have to reapply for that. And at that point they were backlogged for like two years. Sounds about right. So I just kept getting myself in shape and getting ready so that if I have the opportunity to go over there, I can provide for my team, you mm-hmm. know, and and not be somebody that's holding them up. Yeah. And in the meantime, they gave me a job teaching military SWAT school, hmm. which was really cool. I was never a cop. Um, I actually got in trouble the first class that I taught. I want to hear it. <laughs> So here, <laughs> this, <laughs> this may be one we need to edit out, just given the current political situation. Um, but not. <laughs> so I was, we'll you know, you know how, names. yeah, yeah no names. So you know how shoot houses are set up. <laughs> yeah, and there's the rafters, the catwalk up on top for the instructors. You can see, looks like a bunch of mice running through a maze usually. Mm-hmm. So I just gotten teaching, got done teaching flashbang deployment. And I had a scenario set up where I had a role player at the end of this hallway. There were multiple rooms before you get to his room. Mm -hmm. And they were clearing every room on the way there. But as they were moving down the hallway, I had the role player pop a couple rounds off to see if they would think, hey, we know there's a bad dude in here. Let's throw a flashbang in before we make entry into this room. Yeah. They didn't. (laughs) But the role player put his gun down and put his hands up because he didn't want to get shot with paint rounds. Yeah. So they came in and they're like, hands, 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 and like detaining him. And I'm up in the catwalk just losing my mind. And I was like, he just fucking killed half your team. Shoot him. But these are cops. Yeah. (laughs) And so my boss is like, Pulling me aside, he's like, you can't say that. And I was like, I'll sprinkle some crack on him or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> so they had, to, they had to reel me in a little bit after that. And I actually had to go take like some some ethics and oh, code no. classes so that I <laughs> no, could understand. training. Yeah. <laughs> Day one. They were like, maybe we'll take you, have you shadow some of our sheriffs in the community and yeah yeah, yeah there's there, there's a different type of mentality in police officers to military yeah, yeah. you you know and it's the, the the like high social justice law is law and it's never wrong yeah versus like military is about like taking care of your left and right yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah that's funny. I mean, <laughs> yeah please do that too <laughs> for the most part yeah but like yeah yeah we'll, we'll Let's just leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's funny, though. It makes me laugh. <laughs> so uh, I did that for about a year and a half. And then my clearance went through. I went and did the training that I needed to do and then started going back overseas. Um, I think I did about another four trips over to yeah. that Central Asia mm-hmm. region, different countries. And... I honestly, I had a blast doing it. I loved the guys that I, I loved the guys I worked with. Sure. 
The in-country leadership, though, I think from all my contractor friends, I hear the same thing. Mm -hmm. That like your in-country leadership is like a a good old boys club. Yeah. And, but the guys that I was actually doing my job with, I respected. They respected me. We worked well together. Um, Later on, as you'll hear, as the story develops, they did some huge stuff for me and my family to help us out. Yeah. So I I don't have many bad things. The company I worked for was great. What type of work were you doing primarily? Uh, security. Okay. Yeah, security like work. So yeah, it was all in all a good experience. I did that for about three years. And then in 2020, this is where things take a, a big turn. COVID hit. I was in country when COVID hit. And we weren't really doing anything. So they didn't need as many people over there. So they were like, hey, we need some volunteers to go home. Mm-hmm. So it was like guys that had already been there for like 90 days were first to leave. The guys that just got there, they were going to let them stay and make a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. I was like, hell, it's summer or spring. I'm going to go back to them. I'll volunteer to go back to America because there were plenty of guys that wanted to stay and collect a paycheck. Yeah. So I went home and Florida was home at the time and everything shut down, but outdoor activities were still approved. Mm -hmm. So went kayaking with my wife and, oh, I left out a piece. About a week and a half prior, I had gotten some pretty extensive tattoo work done. Mm -hmm. And then things shut down and kayaking was like a valid option. And I wasn't thinking like, oh, there's still an open wound in my leg. So I went kayaking. Four days, you know, had a great time. A couple days after we got back, I woke up in the middle of the night and my kneecap like felt just like real stiff. Like almost like my patella tendon was like angry. It didn't feel like I pulled it or twisted it. Just felt like angry, like hot, warm, kind of stinging and real tight. So I got up, walked around, took some Tylenol, went back to sleep. And then woke up a couple hours later and it was significantly swollen. Mm. So I was like, maybe a spider bit me. You know, Florida's got all kinds of little critters. So I thought maybe a spider bit me. And I went to the urgent care. And at this point, like I was in a little bit better shape than I am now. I was like, I'm 6'3". I was like 250 pounds. Oh, yeah. But like a a good 250, not like a fat 250. 250 lean. Yeah. (laughs) Lean-ish. So the doc's like, you look like you work out a lot. And I was like, I mean, I tried to. And he's like, I think you just overworked it, man. He's like, we're going to give you some steroids and see if that clears it up. So they gave me steroids and sent me on my way. And two days later, it looked like I had a basketball growing off the front of my knee. Mm. And I called, they told, they told me, they gave me some paperwork with an orthopedic doc and said, if it continues, call this guy and set up an appointment with him. So I called and they're like, okay, well, we can get you in in like three weeks. And I was like, I don't think it's going to wait. Yeah. So they're like, okay, if you can come in by four today, he can see you. So I went up there as I... I could only wear like baggy sweatpants is all I could fit over this leg. So I go up there and he's like, go ahead and drop your pants. And I drop my pants and he just goes, fuck. 
Dang. Oh, that's and I, what you want good bedside manner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was a surgeon, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah an orthopedic why. surgeon. Yeah. So, manner for those guys. He was like, hey, I, I need you to go back to the hospital. And I was like, okay, am I like, am I going home tonight? Am What's, what are we doing? He's like, no, you're going to be admitted. He's like, plan to be there for a couple of weeks. He's like, we're going to get you on some IV antibiotics. That's definitely infected. And we'll, We'll just take it from there. But I think we've caught this early enough that the IV antibiotics should be able to take care of it. And I was like, all right, cool. So what I didn't know to tell him and they didn't catch was that I had had steroid treatments four days prior. And those steroids feed your body, but they also feed that bacteria. So the antibiotics weren't working at all. The bacteria was like, no, we don't care about you. We're going to keep on growing. So after about four or five days of being in there, they determined this isn't going to go away from antibiotics. We need to start surgically cleaning this out. So they did an exploratory incision on my leg. And when they cut into my kneecap, it just looked like you opened the dishwasher mid-cycle and like, all the scrambled eggs and nasty water just started oh, pouring out. Awesome. So they stopped, they closed it up and they said, we're going we're gonna to prep you for major surgery tomorrow. And they're like, we got to open that whole leg up. So I went back into surgery and yeah, they opened up from like mid thigh to mid shin, just one big incision. And then two on the sides of my calf and then two on the sides of my ankle. And the big incision in my knee, the doc, I have some crazy pictures that he would, he wasn't supposed to do this. So hopefully he doesn't hear this podcast and know that I'm telling this. <laughs> but he ha- he was like up to his elbow inside my leg, just like scraping out dead flesh. Oh, man. And, and then they'd use these like surgical toothbrushes and stick those down around the calf and ankle and just scrub everything on the inside out. And then... You're asleep. Yeah, I was asleep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they'd wake me up and I'd have wound vacs in Mm. to just keep it from draining. They wouldn't even close it because we had to do this every three to four days for the next like two months. So how was the pain when you were awake? I mean... So the first one was like... I don't remember it being that bad. Now, keep in mind, like, I'm really medicated at this point. Mm -hmm. They were keeping me comfortable. But the second one, that's like the first time in my life that I, in my my adult life, that I cried from physical pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was excruciating. And so... I had an awesome anesthesiologist and I had the same anesthesiologist every time I went to surgery. So he, the next time he was like, Hey, that was pretty rough wake up for you. He's like, this is a lot of trauma to your body in like a five hour period. And then you're waking up and getting the shock of it at once. Yeah. So we're going to try something. So as I was coming out of sedation, they would hit me with ketamine and I'd immediately like, go into dreamland. Yeah, Yeah. like I was still conscious. Like I remember the first time they did it, I was laying in bed and the nurse's desk was right across from me. And for like 20 minutes, I couldn't move, but I was just like, (laughs) just staring staring at her. And she just like started laughing and she was like, (laughs) 
She's like, did they give you ketamine? And I was like, I think so. And she was like, I've seen that stare before. (laughs) I know that stare very well. So, (laughs) but that was awesome for two reasons was because then as the ketamine wears off, I could, it kind of eased me psychologically into that pain Mm -hmm. again, mentally into that pain instead of just being hit with it all at once. Um, But it also like there's, We've talked about this. There's, you know, there's some research being done now on ketamine therapy Mm -hmm. for mental health. Yeah. And I was going through a lot of stress at this time. Because again, I, for the third time, I'm in this position where it was like, how am I going to take care of my family? Yeah. My job is like, I can't do that job anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to college. Like, this is my skill set. Yeah. What else do I do? So... A lot of stress was going on and that honestly really helped me manage that stress. And it also gave me some weird perspective on like who I've been the last, you know, 15, 20 years of my life and who I want to be and how I can get there. Mm. So it just, I don't know, there's, uh, I've never done clinical ketamine therapy. I just had it after surgery. So it wasn't like there was a therapist for me to talk through this experience with. Yeah. But I did start doing research on it and yeah, some, some wild stuff came from it and I'd love to talk with somebody and them tell me what it means because it definitely changed my perspective on life. Um, Was there anything noteworthy that you took away from it, like specifically, or is there anything that you remember like giving you a different perspective on? I think the biggest thing was for, for years, I wasn't treating problems that were happening. I wasn't treating any any mental health You're issues. Or I was just putting band-aids at distractions yeah. was what it was, yeah. you know? And I, I say distractions are like, they're band-aids. They mm-hmm. cover it up, but they're not letting, exactly. they're not helping anything heal. Yeah. yeah. And time to think about it. That's when it starts. Yeah. And so during that like 20 minutes or whatever it was of dream state after surgery, I had this like third party perspective of myself and was able to give myself advice that I wouldn't normally listen to if someone else told me. Yeah. But it was like, I was able to pick apart like, hey, this is what you need to focus on right now. Don't worry about the rest of it. Focus mm-hmm. on this. Once that's fixed, then you have all this energy that you can put into the next problem. Yep. It's like paying off credit card debt. You know, you pay the smallest one first. Yep. And then what you were paying towards that, you now put that towards the second one. And then once those are both paid off, so on, you know? So all of a sudden I was, I didn't feel so overwhelmed with multiple problems. It was like, I just have to focus on this problem right now. And you know, some of those, some days that problem was, I just got to stay alive today because it got worse. So we're doing surgeries after about two months and they had transferred me to another hospital in Florida because I needed a higher level of care. I was still getting sicker. Eventually, the infection spread into my bloodstream and they found some bacteria in my heart and then in my pelvis and it was eating the bone up. And so at that point, the second hospital I was at was like, hey, he's beyond our care. We got to get him moved. And the VA denied it. And they said, oh, man, they said, We'll send him to an assisted living home. We, he's been in the hospital for three months. He's not getting better. We're going to send him to an assisted living home. And I was like, I am 35 years old. Yeah, like, I was like, 
I could have just like, eat you away or just, what? Like, yeah, like like idiots. just just keep me comfortable until I die. Just basically. die in peace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and shit, you know, if I wasn't like actively dying, I probably would have taken him up on it for like a week, and I would have had fun with those old people in the nursing <laughs> home. But at this point, I was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. So thirty-five. That's no time to die, man. Yeah. So like, la- we started. Some friends of ours started posting on through social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, Twitter, that this was happening. Mm-hmm. And the VA still was like, no, we're not doing anything. But like, you know, governors and senators were like calling my phone while I'm in the hospital. And they're like, how can we help? Can we get a news crew in there? And we want to raise some, some hell and get you the help that you deserve. And eventually the word made its way to another nonprofit that works specifically with contractors. And they said, hey, we've got a whole trauma team elsewhere in the country that it's the best doctors. If there's any chance for you, it's there. And we would like to pay all the expenses to get you there. So I couldn't fly because I had 105 degree fever. And they weren't, this is COVID, this is June, or no, this was September of 2020. So COVID was still very high. And yeah, they, I had to take a private jet. I got up there. I got admitted into this hospital and all of a sudden, like things started to change. They were like, hey, these antibiotics that you're on are working for the infection, but you've also had pneumonia for probably at least a month. To the point that we now have to knock you back out and suck all the fluid out of your lungs because you're not, you're like, I think my SPO2 was like 40. Oh, damn. And you can't even breathe. Yeah. And I was on like, they, you know, they've got like the regular nasal cannula and then there's like the like high efficiency one. And then there's like this whole thing face mask yes. that you put on. I was on that whole face mask and they had moved me to the ICU at this point and I was still sitting at like 40. And so... How's your how's your mental state at, at that point when you have compounding issues and you're you're being targeted by the best care in the country and they're like still struggling? Like what, what's going through your head at that point? At this point, because, you know, this started in June of 2020. Yeah. So we're at like... Month three, month four. And I really, I think I finally started to hit a wall, Mm. you know? So we'll talk in a minute about resilience and how that word came into my vocabulary. And, but at that point, I think I had lost all resilience. I was just, I was sick of fighting. It wasn't like every... Every time I started to get ahead, there were like three steps back. It spread to another part of your body. Or, yeah. So I was just constantly living in this place where I'm waiting for the other foot to drop. Mm, yeah. And, and you know, it's taking a huge toll on my family. I've got a 14-year-old daughter. I've been in the hospital for four months. She's in school. Mom's going back and forth. And now they've transferred me to a hospital out of state. So my wife's with me for a week and then home with her for a week. Yeah. So I was just sick. I was sick of fighting. I was sick of putting them through this. And to be completely honest, I, I laid in bed some nights and was like, I, I'm ready. I hope I don't wake up tomorrow. 
Yeah. You know, and, and the, like that was a realistic thing. Like doctors had told me like, hey, make your peace because you might be here today and four hours from now you might not be. This yeah. thing could turn at any point. So, yeah, I hit that wall and I, I laid in bed and I prayed. I was like, I don't want to suffer anymore. I don't want, to, I don't want my family to suffer anymore. Just mm. let them grieve, heal, move on with life. And whatever comes after this for me, I'll find out, you know? Mm, yeah. So, but I kept waking up. Mm. And I'd pray again. I don't want to wake up tomorrow. And I'd wake up and I'd pray again. Mm. And I'd wake up. And eventually it gets to the point where you're sick of being let down. Yeah. And the letdown was being alive. Alive at that point, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I got to that point where I was like, okay, I'm going to keep, I can either keep waking up and being disappointed that I'm alive or I can find a way to turn this into something. Mm. And I had been bedridden this whole time. I could occasionally go walk around the floor of the hospital. Mm-hmm. But I was stuck inside, COVID, no visitors. My wife was the only person that was allowed to visit me. So I spent, I, I had nothing better to do. So I spent that time taking like a self-inventory of like, okay, you know, first is accepting the situation that I was in and embracing it. You know, that I think that's part of the key to being resilient is yeah. being able to embrace that hardship, that hurdle, whatever it is. Mm. So I did. I accepted it. It was like, this is, I can't change this. This is what it is. How can I learn from it? Sure. And I started taking an inventory of like who I want to be on the back end of this. And then I took it a step further and started listing what things in my life are going to drive me towards that. What things in my life are going to keep me from that? Mm. And then it's just one by one getting rid of those negatives. And then just like paying off credit card debt, you got that energy to put in to the next thing. Yeah. So I had a great friend and mentor came up to the hospital I was staying at. And which was in Boston, Massachusetts. He, he lived in Florida. He flew up to Boston. He came to visit me in the hospital. And this is somebody that like throughout my military career, like I've constantly gone to for advice. And even my contracting career, I've mm-hmm. constantly sought his advice because I respected him and his opinion. And he was so well-respected in the community that I knew he was going to point me in the right direction. Sure. And he came up to visit me in Boston and he's sitting down next to my hospital bed and we're talking and he was just like, dude, you're the most resilient guy now. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. And so after he left, he stayed up there for a couple of days. And on the last day that he was there, I actually had two strokes and had to be moved back to the ICU. Jesus. And I, yeah, I woke up one more. He brought me breakfast and I woke up and I was going to the bathroom. Well, I wasn't actively going. I was getting out of bed to go to the bathroom. And as soon as I stood up, the lights went out and I was just blind. And then the left side of my body just went completely numb. And like, I couldn't, no muscle function. And so I sat back down in bed 
I felt around for the little buzzer. The nurse comes in. I was like, I don't know what's going on. They did an MRI and they're like, you've had two strokes in the last couple of hours. So move me back to the ICU. And I started having seizures again shortly after that. Um, I coded during one of the seizures. My wife was actually in there while they were working on me. Um, yeah, so, but I, I came out of it again. I woke up. I eventually got upgraded out of the ICU. We got the seizures under control. And, you know, shortly, like a month or so after that, I actually got out of the hospital in Boston and was able to go back to Florida. So the antibiotics were working during this whole time. Yep. So once I got to Boston, they realized the ones that I was on were working for the infection, but causing pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So they switched it up and they found another one that didn't cause pneumonia but still worked for the infection. And then that in combination with all the manual washout and debridements of the yeah. flesh, just eventually it got under control. What what month did you leave the hospital? Right before Christmas, like a couple of days before Christmas. So how long was this? So this was six months. Six months. At this point. And, but it, it wasn't over. I went home. Had some issues with the the seizure meds again and ended up, I haven't talked about this yet. So, um, again, I was just done fighting. Mm. Things were hard for me to like get reintroduced back into the house. And there was like a lot of work. Like I required a lot of attention still. I was, yeah. you know inject like infusions of antibiotics still multiple times a day. And it's like, you have to wake up at two in the morning and some of them, you can only push the meds so fast. So it's like a 60 minute infusion. Uh, yeah. So I'm waking up in the middle of the night, crutching into the other room, doing this infusion, getting back in bed, doctor's appointments, like four or five doctor's appointments a week. I can't drive. So I need someone to drive me to all those. I was just done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the toll on your family too. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I just felt like it'll be easier if I just go and I'm, I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it's, it was weird. It wasn't necessarily like a depressed thing. It was just like, I made you peace. Like a burden. I made peace. Yeah. And I made peace with what I have done in my time. So I was ready. And so I kind of took it upon myself to see if I could actually make that happen. And luckily, um, a police officer intervened mm. um, by by chance. It wasn't like I, there was a, an event that he showed up for. Um, I was out in the woods and he happened to be driving by and was like, hey, what are you doing out here? And he put two and two together and said, hey, let's take a little trip to the hospital. And so mm. I went in for an evaluation, a mandatory evaluation. And... The doc that was evaluating me was looking at my medication history and he's like, what the hell's been going on the last six months? And I was telling him the whole story. And then he's like, do you take seizure meds still? And I said, yeah, I'm on Keppra. And he goes, do you feel any psychological side effects since you've been taking that? And I was like, absolutely. And I did five years ago when I was on it. That's And I got off of it. And he was like, that's why you feel this way. That's why your behavior is so irrational. And so I was actually only there for like 10 hours and then they were like, you're good to go. 
Um, and we're going to get you off this medication. So I think that was when I finally was like, okay, like, I'm not, I'm supposed to be here for a reason. Yeah. Do do you mind if I ask a hundred percent, a little bit about that? I mean, so you're out in the woods. You obviously have a plan to, to move forward with that. And this police officer shows up out of nowhere. Is yeah. this like a normally patrolled area? So I lived just... out, no, I lived out in the country. Um, and there's like one main road. And then there's like people's private property that have like two mile long dirt driveways. So and then it's of nowhere. Like, yeah. yeah. And then it's just like woods and swamp. And you're out of your truck, like out in the woods. And yep. This guy just comes up out of nowhere. He uh, either whoever's property I was on, or maybe he was driving by, but saw the, saw the headlights. A bit odd that he yeah. ran into you. At that and it was like 10 o'clock at night and he saw the headlights. And I think he was just like, maybe he knew the people that lived there and was like, what are they doing? What's yeah. going on? Like, do you, did you find out the police officer's name? Did you reach back out ever or no. disappeared off into the yeah. like a guardian angel? Yeah, he well, dropped me off, and yeah. that was the end of it. I should probably see. I'm sure some I, sort of fate, right there, yeah. dude. I mean, well, I mean, obviously, this yeah. guy can't die. <laughs> this guy can't die. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, you're impossible to kill, dude. <laughs> so, wow, I finally started to realize, like, okay, yeah, I can't, I can't. Like, there's a there's a reason that yeah. I'm still here, you know, and I'm here. I'm not. I'm not the most religious person, but through this whole experience, I definitely gained some spirituality. Sure. Absolutely. And so I was like, there's a, there's a purpose for this. So I went back to, you know, multiple people telling me, Hey, you're resilient. And people were saying like, Zach, you've, you've got a reputation. You're a good dude. People like you. This is how you help veterans Mm. is you share this story. But it's more than just sharing this story because if I just share this story and we end this podcast now, it looks like I'm playing the victim to these circumstances that have happened. And I don't at all feel that way. I don't feel like a victim at all. I now in hindsight can look back and I'm glad that these things happened to me because of the growth and the knowledge that came exactly. throughout it has made me like myself Mm-hmm. so much more than I ever have in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, w- and what do you think some of the top lessons that you've learned from that adversity that you've faced? So number one thing is, you know, something hits you in the face, some hurdle, some barricade, like something happens in life. First thing is to find your purpose. Mm-hmm. The pur- Whether it's the purpose for that, why this happened to you, or, you know, if like you get hit by a car during an Ironman, there's really no purpose that that happened, but what's your purpose going to be afterwards? So identifying that purpose. And then two for me is surrounding myself by people that are going to push me towards that purpose Mm -hmm. and eliminating relationships that are going to pull me away from it. Yeah. And then the hardest one is being vulnerable. So, and that includes embracing whatever it is, whatever hardship or adversity is in your face. Mm -hmm. And then getting comfortable with it, like inviting it in and and being willing to to take something away from it. Mm -hmm. For years, 
I just distracted as we spoke about. But really where the, you know, it's just like when you work out in the gym, you're doing arms, you're curling. They always say that last set when your muscles are fatigued is where you have the most growth in your Mm. muscles. When you're at the bottom and you allow yourself to be vulnerable, that's where the real shit starts growing. And, And these are all things that I didn't do until something happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now, because I've realized like life's not going to stop. Like, you know, I could, I could leave here today and like get run over by a cow while I'm in Texas. Who knows? (laughs) But there are things we can do to set ourselves up to have better resiliency skills. Exactly. Yeah. As, as that, you know, car hits you. Absolutely. As, as those challenges approach, yeah. ability to rise to the challenge and to take something away from it too. Yeah. It's yeah. so important. I think that uh, it's important to recognize that your past uh, adversities that you face are, can be turned into a strength, mm. you know, yeah. that, that story of overcoming that for others as well. You know, now you have a platform, a foundation to showcase why people should listen to you. Yeah, man. And, and like, that's been the blessing in disguise is after all that happened. So another big piece of this was the guys that I worked with, I spoke about how while I was contracting, I loved the dudes that I worked with. Those guys started to go fund me because obviously I'm not overseas. I'm not getting paid. Yeah. And there's no health insurance as a contractor unless you get hurt overseas. Mm-hmm. So I was just out flapping and you know, this turned into a year of me being in and out of the hospital. And so they put together a GoFundMe to just offset some of the costs. And I don't even remember what the original goal was, but after like 72 hours, they had raised like 60 grand for my family, which took an immense amount of stress Mm. off of us. Yeah. And, and to this day, you know, I can't call everybody and people donated anonymously. I've reached out to as many people that I had your contact information to Mm -hmm. say thank you. But if anybody hears this that donated and I didn't have a chance, I want you to know that you changed things for us. So, um, yeah, that opened up opportunities for me that gave me some buffer to figure out what I want to do yeah. and where I want to go with this. And obviously going overseas again is out of the question, but now I get to do things like this and I travel around and I speak about natural medicine over pharmaceutical medicine. Yes, and, yeah. you know, I'm not that dude that's like pharmaceutical, fuck pharmaceutical medicine. There's a place for it. Sure. There yeah. is. There yeah. is. There is. There's a balance, but is it overused and abused? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other side of it is because of my work, I work with a CBD company called Tactical Relief. Mm-hmm. And I go around promoting their products and it, it's, it's awesome because when people ask how I got involved with that, I get to tell them the Cliff Notes version of all this and then they share their story and we get to learn from each other. Yeah. And that's like the coolest thing in the, the world. community yeah. around it is, is interesting and it's, it's, it's like it is a, the best kept secret in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's natural medicines. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, through that, because I have been more outspoken about it, I have started to realize that there's this trend 
kind of turning as the stigma behind whether it's THC cannabis or CBD cannabis, the stigma's going away. Yep. Yes, it is. Which is awesome. Yes. But you're starting to see the pendulum swing a little bit too far to As where it always will. Yeah. There's always we always have to go extreme in humanity. Yeah. yeah. And I have find middle ground. I have guys that'll come up and they'll be like, Yeah, man, I got off twelve pharmaceutical meds and now I just smoke this strain in the morning and yeah. I smoke this strain in the afternoon and then I smoke this strain in the Please. evening. And I'm like, cool. California. So we talked we talked about this recently about uh about the the marijuana strains in California and where they're legal because there's no regulation. Yeah. They, there was, I admit, I, I, I use marijuana. There was a 54% joint that they sold me at California. And I looked at this fucking thing and I'm like, wait a second. This thing was a monster. 4%? And and the, the headspace that it puts you in is, I, I mean, incapacitated. Yeah. It is... Uh, it, it is was, drug into. I was like, this should not be legal. It was, you know? yeah. It was akin to LSD, like, like I believe it, like full yeah. blown vision, like incapacitating. And, and where is the middle ground? That's the point of legalization is regulation of yeah. of the products so that we could get the best out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, that that's just humanity. Is yeah. So let's just go extreme, a hundred percent on all spectrums. So when not, you yeah. see, not naysaying in the least, because I, I'm a huge proponent of, of yeah. cannabis as yeah. anxiolytic to help with depression, PTSD, inflammation. I, I think it's I think it's wonderful. Moderation and not replacing or becoming re-addicted to something that's supposed to be beneficial. And that's yes. that's the yeah. thing is you start to see people that, and it's great that they're getting off those pharmaceutical meds and turning towards a natural medication. Yeah. But what are you doing for yourself to not need yeah. it's anything? It's still a band-aid. It can still be. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, and, and that's the word is addiction. Yeah. When you rely on something, that is when it becomes a detriment to your life. And if you if you need something constantly in your system to, to get through the day, mm-hmm. but you're not doing anything else yep. except smoking a joint or eating an edible, mm-hmm. Like that's that's not that's what I'm. A, that's it. not what I'm about. Like yeah. I'm about doing the hard work, yeah. and like that's a tool to help you do that hard work. Yeah. You know, those are it's it's the gloves for while you're digging a hole so that your hands don't get all blistered. You know what the best yeah. medicine is yeah. pen to paper journaling. Hundred percent. If man. you if if you have anxiety every single day and you just smoke a joint to get over it, you're masking. Mm-hmm. If you put pen to paper and say, "Why do I have anxiety?" Let's just brain dump here. Yep. And then you can smoke a little marijuana yeah. while you're doing it to be more creative or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. A lot. But you have to do the personal growth yourself. Yeah. And a great example, I'd like to provide examples because after just long, continue. long discussions <laughs> about not providing examples, my God. Anyways, uh, totally different discussion. If you want to journal and say you're having anxiety about business, right? The things that I have to, not even business, the things you have to accomplish today or this week, that's usually what where my anxiety comes from. And the way that I combat that is by writing out my daily tasks. If I have 10 things to accomplish today, I have a little journal. It's in my car and I bring it inside with me every, every day. Write down those 10 boxes and I check them as I accomplish those things. Mm-hmm. Because if they're sitting in my head, they're just going to be revolving. Like I have these 10 things to do. There's no order. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So I write them down in no specific order. And as I accomplish those things, I check the boxes. And that visceral action of checking a box of those things that have been spinning around in my head removes it entirely. Mm-hmm. If I have things for the week, I'll do that same thing, right? That's also a win. Exactly. When you, when you put that, gr- that check win. mark in, yeah. that is a win for you. 
and that anxiety decreases naturally. Yeah, you get you get Absolutely. a huge boost. You get those. You get happy feelings, happy chemicals releasing. As soon as you check, you're like, oh shit, I accomplished something. I'm making progress. Like I'm not mm-hmm. stuck in this depression procrastination loop where it's just yeah feeding itself continually. Like I can see that I am physically making progress yeah, here. Absolutely. If, if you don't know how to journal, start by doing something like that. Write down True your story for the day. Yeah. It's easy. It's simple. Something I've started doing, a friend of mine told me I should try it. And, and I did for a while. And now I do it almost every morning, um, even if it's just with like the notepad on my phone. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but first thing I do while I'm still laying in bed, like I've woken up, but I haven't gotten out of bed yet, except maybe to use the bathroom sit back in bed for a couple minutes and I sit and I think about what values matter to me today. Mm, and, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and I write that list out. And then from there, it's up here throughout the day yeah. that this is what I value mm. and everything that I do needs to reflect push towards, needs to reflect yeah. towards that. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's helped me really f- start to feel like a much better person than I was before. And, you know, I, mm. I talk about silver lining, finding the silver linings and all this. It, like, because of the growth that I ended up doing, which, you know, whether it came from not being able to die when I wanted to die or it mm. came because I was bored and couldn't get out of bed and I just was needed something to do, whatever it was at the end of the day, I like myself a lot more who I am now mm-hmm. than I did before. So would I take it back if I could? Probably not. It yeah. sucked. I wish it hadn't been as hard for some of the people around me. Sure. But for me. But it made them stronger too. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, you know, we have a tendency if you have gone far in your journey for personal development to see that silver lining in almost yeah. everything in that adversity and that mm-hmm. hardship that you're facing. Like I'll go through bad times too and talk to Christian and be like, okay, what's, what's the lesson to be learned out of this? Like mm-hmm. there's gotta be something, but that goes for everyone around you as well. Yeah. It's a hard time for them, but they're stronger from it. Mm-hmm. You know? They're closer to you from it. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, and it kind of goes on all facets. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, Sometimes our purpose finds us. Yeah, it's true. And so because all of this happened, I mean, I, I think you guys would agree. Once once we stopped serving in the military, we never stopped searching for a way to serve. Yep. Agreed. Could not agree. And Every like, single one of our guests. Yeah. Every single one of them continue to serve in some capacity. And this is this is how I chose to serve after that. I chose to figure out how I was going to get through it. And then, you know, and I'm not saying that my way is the only way or that my way is the best way, but it's, it's my way and I'll be as real as you want to get with me about it. And I hope that one person, it starts that ripple effect that changes and gets them out of that, whatever, whatever hole they're in, whatever their rock bottom looks like. And that's the, the whole purpose of why we share these stories, right? Is the adversity that you face, uh, you know, Every, everybody looks upon that as like, oh, this guy's gone through a hard life. He must hate his life. <laughs> the, the, the case is, is that the if you do the work yeah. and you try to discover what's going on and don't do the avoidant behaviors, mm. 
you're going to get through it and love yourself all the more for it. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the greatest people in my life have gone through the shittiest situations. But man, are they the best people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The strongest people. Yeah. 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 Well, you're incredibly strong and I really appreciate <laughs> you for sharing your story. And Man, it's awesome to be out here. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for letting me share this message. And, you know, like I said, I'm learning. So if anybody, anybody wants to share their experience with me, I'd be more than happy to get on a call, email, text, yeah. Where whatever. Where can we find you at? Um, so tactical relief, tactical underscore relief is our company page. Yeah. And then my Instagram is Zach underscore next underscore door. It's also my OnlyFans page. It's like, oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, no, <laughs> he's really into knees. Yeah. yeah. Since he's it's mostly elbow picks. It's elbow picks. It's elbow picks. Feet finder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. Zach, so, yeah. Th- th- thank you very much for coming in today. If, if you had one, one thing to tell the audience but before about resiliency or, or about anything, really, what, what would you want to share or enlighten them with? Pick something this week, no matter how big or small it is, that's out of your comfort zone. And don't expect someone else to force you to Mm -hmm. go do it, but force yourself to go do it. And then just be present. Don't worry about what the people around, you know, if it's, I've been wanting to go try CrossFit for forever. Don't worry about what you look like while you're doing CrossFit because everybody looks stupid (laughs) when they start off. (laughs) Um, But... Be present in that moment yeah. and just, you, you'll see what you can take away from it. And I guarantee at the end of that workout, you're going to be glad you went, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or whatever it is. If, yeah. if, if, I, if you have trouble, if you have so much anxiety that you can't step outside your house, go sit in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the backyard. Don't worry about the front yard yet, yeah. but do something. Small steps. Small steps. Find something that makes you uncomfortable and force yourself to go do it. Mm. And then keep forcing yourself to go do it until it becomes comfortable. And then push that a step further. Yeah. Because the growth that comes then is going to be huge. Starts with a decision, though. Yeah. Yeah. And will. Self-will. Well, thanks a lot, Zach. Uh, This has been the Medivac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for watching. And if you do decide to take up uh, Zach on his challenge to you, let us know about it. Shoot me a DM. Shoot the medevac page a DM. Let us know in the comments. Send some videos to us. You could DM yeah. us some CrossFit videos. Yeah. <laughs> sitting, sitting in your backyard. Whatever you want to do. Let us know. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.